Let's read together these words from God to us, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead. There is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world so that you might save a people for yourself and restore justice and righteousness to the entire creation. But we have a hard time seeing him, even though you have enlightened us and shown us. He becomes distant and vague to us, though he has said that when we gather in his name, he is there in our midst. So, Jesus, we thank you for your presence here right now by your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would give us a bigger, more complete vision of who you are and how you work in us as a result of focusing on this passage for the next half an hour. Help us to hear. Give us eyes to see. And let our hearts rejoice in who you are and what we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Few things rattle a church more than apostasy. Apostasy is a repudiation of faith in Jesus. It might be a renunciation of the truth of the gospel altogether, or it might be changing what someone believed to such a degree that it stands outside the doctrine or the morals taught in the Bible. That is apostasy. Apostasy was the challenge 
facing the church that first received this letter. People who had once been church members denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that Jesus was the Son of God. They denied his atoning work on the cross. They denied that sin was a thing that offended God. We're not told whether they left the church voluntarily or if they were excommunicated, but John writes about them in chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So they left. But still, they had influence. And that's why John wrote to the church. He gives the purpose for his writing this letter in our text today. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Why would he be worried about that? Our faith can be shaken in a controversy. It can happen when a famous Christian, someone we looked up to and even benefited from in our own faith, then denies the gospel or a central doctrine or is exposed for living a secret life not in keeping with the gospel. It can happen when someone we knew and loved in the church, someone with whom we prayed and worshipped and shared life with, announces they no longer believe or that they no longer accept Scripture as authoritative. I want to warn all of us today. This is a real thing. We live in an age of increasing apostasy. And if this challenge has yet to arrive at your doorstep, it will. And when it does, you can begin to wonder, is all this for real? Have I been giving myself to something that is fake? John wrote, so we could know we have eternal life. So how can we know that we have eternal life? Well, eternal life, first, when John uses the phrase eternal life or the word life, it's central to both the Gospel of John and this letter. It's an all-encompassing word like salvation. It's all the goodness we have in God now and into eternity. It's being in Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. Well, how do you know you have this life? It's not like we get a certificate suitable for framing sent to us via UPS from heaven above. John tells the members of this particular church to look for three things. First, belief in the apostolic teaching about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's first evidence of eternal life. Second, obedience to the commands of Christ. And third, Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who had left the church had failed on all three counts. But John shows this church that those who remained were faithful to the gospel, to obedience, and to love. See, when you are able to identify 
evidence of God's grace working in you. It makes you confident. In verse 13, John says he writes so that you know that you have eternal life. This knowledge gives us confidence to pray with expectancy. It causes us to reach out to a brother to pray for him when he's stuck in his sin. This confidence gives us courage in the face of the assaults and temptations of the evil one. Church, we need confidence. The letter ends with a warning, but it's a warning in the context of confident faith. It's a warning that those who truly are in God's Son, Jesus Christ, are a people who already possess eternal life, but they must make this calling, they must make this awareness sure. So it's a warning if you do not make you do not make this gift of life sure in your life and cultivate it by abiding in God as he abides in you, you can be vulnerable. Now, I want to I explain, because I don't know if it's always clear why I choose the books that we go through in sermons. Last winter... We're taking a brief break from going through the book of Genesis, and I had planned to resume that when the pandemic shutdown began. And I realized that we really are living in unprecedented times. And I thought, we need to be sure in who we are and what we believe. A deadly virus, social and political upheaval are not our primary problems. Our faith is being tested. This book allows us to focus on what is most important, what will carry us through trying times. And in, in a brief summary, what will carry us, what we must cultivate is faith in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so this text, um, you can break it down into three aspects of confidence that we can have. Number one, this faith gives us confidence in prayer. Number two, this faith gives us confidence to pray when one of us gets stuck in a sin. And number three, this faith, faith gives us confidence in the face of evil. So number one, this faith gives us confidence in prayer. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him, toward the Son of God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, the idea behind God hearing us is that he listens to us with favor. He's postured to respond. He wants to do good. Obviously, God hears all prayers and that he has knowledge of all things. But some prayers he hears with favor. So we should have confidence that he hears us with 
favored. Uh, this echoes Jesus' words in John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the key to confident prayer is abiding in Jesus. It's keeping his word in your heart. It's praying for what you think he would pray in your own circumstances. When you think like he thinks, your desires match his own, and you pray prayers, you can be confident he hears with favor and is going to answer with favor. If I pray, oh God, make me rich, he won't hear me. Because he warns me that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6. So I can't pray that prayer with confidence. But if I pray, oh Lord, give us today our daily bread. Give us that bread we need for our existence. I can be confident God hears me. Because this is what Jesus taught me to pray. So John begins by saying, when you pray as Jesus has taught you to think and desire, you gain a confidence that's reflected in verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So we can pray with confidence because we're abiding in him. His words are abiding in us. And so we can leave our prayer and say, you know, he, he's got it. He heard. He's acting with favor. Number two, this faith gives us confidence to pray when one of us gets stuck in a sin. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. And so John is saying that for those who are committing sins that do not lead to death, we should pray for them. We should pray with confidence, with the confidence that we just learned about in verses 13 through 15. So here we have a situation where one church member sees another committing a sin. In other words, this sin is observable in behavior or speech. His first response should be to pray for him, to ask, and God will give him life. God will give him freedom from that sin. When we look at one another's failures, our first response should not be, how could they do that? Or I would never do that. Or any number of self-righteous thoughts that arise in our hearts. Our first response should be prayer. Oh God, have mercy. Oh God, give the gift of repentance. Oh God, help. Oh God, how can I help? Prayer is not the only response, but it's what John focuses on here. We are not only responsible for our own repentance, we are responsible to help each other with the lifelong challenge of dealing with temptation and sin. 
Listen to the last paragraph in the book of James. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So all of us here, all of us are prone to wander. And we must care for each other in our wanderings. Our sanctification is our responsibility before God, but it's also all of our responsibilities for each other. And the first thing we should do is pray. We must pray. And James says we must bring him back, presumably by appealing to him to turn from his ways. So I think that's pretty clear in this section of 1 John 5, but I know what you're thinking. What's up with the sins that lead to death? John restricts these prayers to those sins that don't lead to death. In the case of sin that does lead to death, John says, I do not say one should pray for that. Now, it's interesting. He's not giving a command here. It's more like, don't hear what I'm not saying. So he's saying, if you see a brother sinning, behavior, speech, you should pray for him. You should pray with him. You should reach out to him. But he says, I'm not saying that related to sins that lead to death. So we got to figure out what this is. Now, I read widely on this, and I can tell you that the scholars have scratched their heads over this for nearly 2,000 years. John doesn't spell out what he means because we can assume his original readers already knew what that was. He taught them what that was. Some have speculated that this is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit that Jesus condemned, but... In that case, someone attributed Jesus' deliverance of a demonized man to the work of Satan. That doesn't fit the context of this book. I think the best answer arises from the context of the letter. You should always assume that when these fellows wrote these letters, uh, they... They knew what they were doing. They, they knew how to fit it together. They had a, a theme and a unity to the letter. So we have to ask the question, how does this, this mention of sins that lead to death fit what, with what was going on in the church and the reason that John was writing to them? And I think the best answer is that he's referring to people who were once a part of the church who have renounced faith in Jesus. They have denied his deity. They have denied his atoning work on the cross. They refuse to say that Christ is the Son of God. They refuse to say that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus was just a man. Christ is in heaven. We need no atonement. Christ did not die. The sin that leads to death is the sin that rejects Jesus as God's Son and anointed Messiah king. Not only does this sin lead to death, but their unbelief means that all their sins come under God's judgment. Tracking with me? 
John is not saying that some people sin and some don't. Every one of us does. John points out in verse 17 that all wrongdoing is sin. The difference is that some sins lead to death and some don't. Sins that Christians commit don't lead to death. They are forgiven sins. They have already been punished through Jesus dying in the sinner's place on the cross. As a result of Jesus' work, Christians are joined to Jesus and have his spirit within them. As a result, the Christian is oriented toward obedience to Jesus and will want help with those sins. Throughout my career, there have been times where I've had to meet with people and inquire about their repeated sins. And if the person is a Christian, you can tell there is a sadness and a grief and a desire to change. Even if the repetition of that sin has addictive qualities to it. The people to really be concerned about are the people who excuse or dismiss or are, are hardened. They, they just don't care. Christians want to turn from sin. Look at the beginning of verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's not saying there's a shut-off time and no sin after that. He's saying you don't perpetuate the sin. You repent. You confess. You want help. You welcome prayer. So the calling to help Christians who are stuck in a habit of sinning does not apply to those people who have apostatized. Now, we have a hard time with this because we've been trained to be compassionate and we live in a psychological age. We assume that sin is just an expression of some inner torment that the sinner has been subjected to. Now, you all know your Bible and you know that the Bible has compassion for the weak and the needy and the oppressed But the Bible has no compassion for the obstinate, the arrogant, or the rebellious. And we need to be equally aware that not only does the Lord save and redeem, but he also condemns and judges. We tend not to see apostasy as a horrible sin. Maybe you put it in a category of a life... Lifestyle choice. Dumb choice, but whatever. Listen, to deny what you once believed is not only a sin, but as the writer of Hebrew puts it, Hebrews puts it, those who do so are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him, holding the Son of God up to contempt. A year ago, someone who was once a leader in our own circle of churches publicly apostatized. Someone I once knew well. And I was disappointed to hear some express compassion for him. 
What he has done is sad, but it's more than sad. It's not just lamentable, lamentable, it has eternal implications, not only for him, but for those who once looked to him to understand the gospel. It's a sin that leads to death. He doesn't need compassionate prayer. He needs rebuke and a call to repentance. And so we must see the insidious nature and really the horror of apostasy. I get non-believers who have never tasted of the heavenly gift, who've never seen publicly portrayed before them Jesus Christ crucified. That's the language of the writer of Hebrews. I, I get their ignorance. I get their misunderstanding. I, I, I get their hostility toward me. I find it horrific that a person who once knew those things will now publicly de declare their unbelief. So why does John put this at the end of his letter? <laughs> you think, how did this end up here? Let me make an educated guess. I think that there were people in the church who looked at the sins of the successionists, those who had left and denied Jesus Christ, and they were tempted to want to go help them out, to reach out to them, to offer to pray for them. And John says they shouldn't do that. They should avoid them. Look over in the opposite page from 1 John chapter 5. 2 John. 2 John. Verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John has a very different attitude and approach to those who once believed and now are teaching and proclaiming otherwise. So when we see each other's sin, each of us who has faith in Jesus, we should pray and reach out and care for one another, speak the word of God to each other. But we should not extend the same fellowship to the one who renounces a faith he once proclaimed. Only reason I'm bringing this up is because it's here in the Bible. And that's what we come to. Number, the third section of this passage, giving us a faith that is confident. Number three, this faith gives us confidence in the face of evil. That's verses 18 through 21. The secular age we live in has no answer for evil. All it can do is politicize evil or turn it into a social sickness. 
Nobody wants to admit that there's an evil force at work in the world that goes beyond any one person or political party or nation. Typically in the world, we create evil in others, other groups, other races or ethnicities or uh, classes. Where does this evil come from? What the Bible does is pull back the curtain and shows us that there is a personal source of evil that goes beyond this created world. The devil is a created being, but his origins predate God's creation of the heavens and the earth. He is the original hater, the ultimate liar, the one who through deceit and accusation tries to destroy the church of God. If you don't recognize this, you can see certain things start to happen and you think, how is this possible? But this is a real factor in our life. There is an accuser who hates you. Our church is not some neutral social club and mutual aid society. There are big guns aimed at us, and were it not for the one John identifies in verse 18 as he who was born of God, we would have been destroyed long ago. Look at 18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Who is the one? He was born of God. John is referring to, and if you go back through the Gospel of John and 1 John, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who is born of God. He is the son of God that the secessionists denied. Our confidence does not derive from some better doctrine or more faithful obedience, or a thick community that shows love to one another. Our confidence in the face of evil is that we know that we are from God, as verse 19 says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but not us. We have a saving king who defends us. He protects us. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Oh no, we are fools if we think we can be confident in our own efforts and self. No, our confidence is in his protection. Our confidence is in him. Verse 20 reminds us that we know that the Son of God has come. We know that he lived and he taught us and he died and he rose and sent his spirit. As verse 20 continues, he has given us this understanding He didn't just teach us truth. He is true. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal Life. He's the truth. And we're in him. We're in him. This is such a 
phenomenal mystery that we dwell in Jesus Christ and he dwells in us. This letter has told us repeatedly, we abide in God and abide, God abides in us. We participate in his personal indwelling. And the way we participate is through right confession, praying according to his will, obedience to his commands, loving others. That's what the letter lays out for us. That's the Christian life. It is simple in that way can be hard given the devil and our own propensity toward sin. But we possess this already. Eternal life is him. Eternal life is not an experience he gives us apart from him. Eternal life is relationship. Saying the same thing. Thinking the same thoughts. Being together in him. That's eternal life. We experience this life. It's not, it's not just an idea. It's an experience. And we know it because of his spirit who dwells within us. Listen, church. Where does our safety lie? We live in an age of obsession with safety. You want to be safe? Safety lies not in our power to obey, not in our knowledge of the truth, not in our love or our ability to love. Our confidence before God lies in his power within us, drawing us to obey. His power within us, changing our thoughts so that they agree with his truth. Our safety lies in his power to love us and give us the ability to love. Therein lies our confidence before God in the face of evil. This entire letter calls us to see Jesus and then to trust him because of who he is. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then to live life out of our union with him, a life that God has given us. That really sums up the whole book. But then we have the last verse. And it's jarring. I taught English composition to junior high and high school students for a number of years. And I probably would have written in the margin, save this for another essay. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Up to this point, there has been no mention in John's letter of idolatry. Certainly, we know that the Roman world was filled with the worship of idols, but is that what John has in mind? You know, hey, before I sign off, by the way, stay away from idols. Now, the ancients did recognize idolatry and idols as three-dimensional statues that became an access point to the God that was behind them. But the ancients could also regard idols as phantoms or imaginations. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
invisible influences that are spiritually defiling and deluding people. That's an, that's an idol. So it's not just the actual object, but the imagination that it creates in your mind behind it. John doesn't say which he's thinking of, so we don't know. But if we read this final line in keeping with all that has gone before it, we can say this with clarity. Little children, keep yourself from the fantasies that the secessionists proclaim. Their assertions have no grounding in Scripture, and the spirit behind their beliefs is from the evil one. That's an idol. Keep yourself from that. Keep yourself from these imaginations. Idols are simply images of self-fulfillment. They portray what we want in the way we want things to be. They work like mirrors. You look into them, and you start to look like them. See, sin is a real problem for us. Apostasy is a temptation. Uh, getting belief in Jesus and trust in him wrong can happen. There is a devil who is trying to overpower you and us. And these idols play to our sins. They try to make us comfortable in something that is wrong or false. If you deny that sin exists, the fantasy says that you are then relieved from being accountable to God. If there's no sin, you need no Savior dying in your place. You can have a heavenly Christ with no Jesus messing in your earthly life. You can be spiritual without being religious, as the saying goes. I think this is what John's getting at. Embrace the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Obey him. Listen to him. Let him love you. Love the brothers as he wants. Keep away from idols. Avoid all forms of evil. That's the message of this letter. Eternal life is all about Jesus. When you are joined to him, you have everything you need for today and into eternity. You're, you're covered. You're safe. You're protected. You are empowered. Don't let anyone pull you away from him. Abide in him. Let his words abide in you. He has been and is and will be your only confidence in this life, even through seasons of deep disappointment and failure where your faith is challenged and hope grows dim. Abide in him. Let his words abide in you. And you will not only live in the good of eternal life today, but into that day where sin and the world and the devil are no longer a challenge. May it be so for every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Lord, in a 
difficult and changing age, we need your help. And your help will not come in better policies, better procedures, better habits. All those things are helpful, but they're not the real help. The help is found in your son, Jesus, who has come to dwell among us and in us by his spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would establish us in him and keep us from the temptations that draw us away from him and let us live in the joy that comes to having eternal life in the son we ask you this father through him amen